0: Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, your host. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home again this week. I'm very happy to be here. I wanted to... Um, well, let me see. How do I start this off? Well, first off, let me go ahead and just get right into it, okay? So as you can see, I am joined this week by Kate Amber, and she is a graduate of the Salford Program on the Psychology of Coercive Control, just like I am. We did Woo-hoo. the program together, and, um, and she is uh, featured as a guest on my show this week because she has not been idle. She actually put together a model on coercive control based on all those study and research and work that we all did, and we're going to talk about that. So first off, welcome to the show, Kate.
1: Oh, it's so great to be here, and wonderful to see you again, Chris. <laughs>
0: yeah, you too. And it's nice to do these kind of uh, this kind of format, these venues, because um, we get to share our work with the public, and we get to share our thoughts and feelings about all this stuff, you know. Yeah. Um, and on that note, actually, I guess I should say, you know, this Salford program has kind of—I it, I think it's popular. I think that I think people are interested. I have had uh, more than a couple people contact me privately. You know, what's the program? What's it all about? Maybe I'm thinking about doing it. And I always, you know, give them a quick little rundown and and uh, and try to get them connected up with uh, Rod and Linda Dubrow Marshall, the the creators and and people who run the program. Uh, have you had that happen with you?
1: I have. I've had a few people contact me, and at least two are in the program currently. Nice. Um And so, you know, maybe you and I should like start our own multi level marketing thing. <laughs> <laughs> we could start getting missions from this pyramid of this. Yes. Universe.
0: Yes. We'll use the MLM framework for something positive for once. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the anti-cult MLM. There you um, go. There you go. There you go. Oh, that's awesome. Um, So why don't we kind of maybe start from the beginning with you, uh, and then we'll get into this work that you have done around this. Uh, First off, of course, coercive control, okay? Uh, Isolation manipulation control. I just kind of give that little quick summary rundown on what are we talking about? We're talking about domestic violence abusers. We're talking about cults. We're talking about gangs. We're talking about trafficking. We're talking about the... The codependent relationships and the and the sort of behavioral dynamics that that surround that predatory behavior. That's what we've studied for a year at Salford and kind of broken down in terms of looking at it uh, anatomically, looking at it in terms of how it, to deal with it. You know, what is what is its anatomy? What is the therapy that you might use to deal with it and the and the after effects of it? Um, What brought you to the program and what's your background with this?
1: So I discovered the program after having read, I read Evan Stark's book Ah. um, because I had been in a relationship that I knew included domestic violence, but it had something else. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what that other thing was. Um, it, It wasn't just physical violence and it was, It was actually mostly not physical violence. It was a whole lot of something else. And I um, ran across Evan Stark's book. And after reading his book, I went, oh, that's it. That's That's... what it is right there. Um, It brought together all of the um, elements that seemed to be missing inside of the domestic violence model that I was familiar with. So after reading the book... Um, I actually first went to the uh, University of Pennsylvania and did a postgraduate certification program in executive leadership in violence and abuse prevention at the Ortner Center. And while I was in that program, I started hunting around for some way to get a degree in coercive control. And of course, as you know, there's only one master's program in the world (laughs) and i found it and i was thrilled i mean i was absolutely thrilled and signed up right away i was i wasn't gonna do the full masters i was just gonna do the certification i thought well that's enough but to one course in by the time we finished the first uh course that first trimester i was hooked and so i transitioned to the master's degree program
0: nice nice let me ask you as a domestic abuse survivor um obviously that you know drew you to the program what do you think you know i'm i'm huge on education being Hmm. uh just an integral component of recovery i just i just don't know the way that i think and the way that i sort of structure my world I can't imagine a recovery process that doesn't educate the person in what happened to them. And obviously, that's not the purpose of going to do a master's level program. You're doing a lot more than that, right? But I just wanted to kind of put the plug in there for education. And having been a cult survivor and going into this program and not doing it for therapeutic purposes, and yet experiencing quite a bit of catharsis doing it, I'm curious... Did you have a similar experience yourself?
1: I had several.
0: Mm.
1: Very significant, um, as you might call it, cathartic experiences while doing the program. I was hit most hard at the very beginning. Mm. Um, First of all, I hadn't been in university in what, 25 years, so. (laughs) So first, I had to get used to school again. <laughs>
0: right. Um, I think but, we all freaked out about that a little bit.
1: <laughs> well, and it's not like I was it's not like I was a psychology major. I was mm. a musician. I I was a singer and I was a music major and then I switched over into photography. So I even with the background I did have, I wasn't prepared for right. regardless of the fact that it was 25 years later. But anyway, um I had experiences in the program where I would just get these sort of—I'd get triggered, and I'd the classes. Every time we had a an, a lecture, mm-hmm. thank goodness they were recorded, mm-hmm. you know, because because I would something would somebody would say something, and then I would be off in a memory of something that had occurred. And what's interesting is that I was also in um landmark education,
0: which I don't oh, know if you know that. Oh, I did not realize you had some landmark background. I'm I'm very familiar. Yeah. So it's a Scientology had, so offshoot.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And so um while and and I also was in a um a group that did karate. Mm-hmm. And um and I was also part of Consumers Byline, which, as you may know, um, was started by Keith Ranieri, the head. Oh, of... Oh no! Business.
0: Oh my so, goodness! So oh. I was
1: I was getting hit left and right, um, and I studied personal development for twenty five years, so my my mindset. I was having to extract, I was having to go through and think, okay, this seemed like a good experience at the time in some ways, and yet there were these things, and here's how this connects. This is coercive control, and this is coercive control, but what can I, is there anything I can keep? Like Landmark, I was in Landmark for five years, and Mm -hmm. I created my company while I was in Landmark. You know, I designed my photography business while I was in there, and I grew it, and I had a 22-year success in in the company that I created from Landmark, and yet there were these other aspects. And so much of my time was spent trying to figure out, okay, was this good or bad, or is it somewhere in the middle? Right. And of course, having come out of a um, a coercive, coercively controlling relationship, um, and having spent five years in a high control group, um, and of course, the other piece is that when I was um, seven years old, my father kidnapped my brother and I and took us to Australia. And so I spent nearly a year away from my mother having been kidnapped by my father, who has a lot of narcissistic and sociopathic traits.
2: Mm, So my
1: experience of coercive control is like from day one, Right. but I hadn't connected them all together. And when I got to Salford and we started doing the research and something else would come up and all of a sudden I'm like wow this is like the string that runs through the negative experiences in my life wow so i wow. had um i had a lot of aha moments and a lot of and i was really grateful that that uh rod and linda had recommended that we do a journal mm. um because it was so intense um i don't think i would have remembered the process as well, had I not journaled my way
0: through it. That makes sense. That makes sense. How interesting, and to have it, you know, have affected your life in so many different levels or so many different ways, uh, all throughout your life. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, wow. I, I, there's one part that you mentioned that I wanted to sort of comment on, which is not to leave the rest of it at all, because it's everything <laughs> you just said there is like, wow. Um, But I wanted to comment on the fact that it is so difficult sometimes for people to come out of or get away from or eventually just kind of, you know, maybe even just sidle away from some group or activity like a landmark or a Scientology and have to sort out, you know, what was good, what was bad or was it good or was it bad. And so we need to put some overall label on it when in fact you know it, it can be nuanced it can be a multi-level kind of thing uh, not multi-level marketing but i mean you know it can be like a it can be like a nuanced mind. it can be a nuanced thing right um because i find myself you know i've pretty much labeled scientology as like danger keep out stay away don't go near it and that has more to do with the authoritarian framework of the of the organization um, and the, and the, and the, and the landmines that are sort of installed in the writings of Hubbard, the way he twists things around. But in doing that, you know, I have to, I, it's easier to just do it that, just say, stay away, just keep away from it, right? But you do have to acknowledge that there are positive things that people can get from these experiences. And it would be, I think it's a healthier thing to look at, okay, here's what I got that was good. I'm going to keep that. I'm going to acknowledge that. I'm going to like, okay. But I don't have to then for the rest of my life feel like I'm in debt or that I have to now suggest or endorse this to other people because uh, look at all these other ways there are to achieve those goals or accomplish those feelings or feel these ways without all that authoritarian crap, you know, and without having to shell out a million dollars, you know, and stuff like that. So minor detail minor yeah these little things right that mean so much so <laughs> <laughs> anyway just wanted to comment on that one part but you've said so much there it's like wow there's a that is quite a lot of life experience and i imagine that the program really helped you deconstruct a lot of that stuff
1: well it really did and i'm still doing it yeah i mean because it's it it is it has occurred my entire life in different areas and it's one reason why Um, many folks who discuss coercive control do so inside of one context. Yes. You know, either you, either you're in the cult world or you're in the domestic abuse world or you're the human trafficking or gangs or whatever. And we're all kind of siloed in these different areas. Um, But for me, I've, I've lived it all. Mm -hmm. And so I'm now I haven't the, the, the quote unquote cult that I was in. I mean, I do consider landmark, um, an an extremist. It does have some, um, coercive control in it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't really refer to it as a cult, Mm -hmm. although I don't refer to most groups as cults. Anyway, I would call them coercively controlling groups. Um, just like I would call, call a, a coercively controlling relationship. So, um, where was I going with that? Let's see. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, you were talking about the breadth of your experiences, and and oh yes, yeah. yes.
1: So when I um, I was really pleased that Salford had such a diverse um, and uh, broad lens of coercive control, and mm-hmm. gave us such um, a large amount of um, research to delve into in different areas. So that we could see the pattern across these different contexts. And so that's why when I went to do my uh, dissertation and my research and I put together my model, I wanted it to not just be one thing. I wanted to be able to... Sh- because I think because coercive control is so invisible in plain sight, mm-hmm. Um. you might look... At you might come out of Scientology and think, Oh, that experience was coercive control. That's what coercive control looks like. And if that's your only frame of reference for it, then you may not, you might go right into a relationship that's coercively controlling.
0: Bingo. That's right.
1: (laughs) Or you might come out of a high controlling group. And go right into another high control group, That's only it's it. a different flavor, right? Exactly. It's still high control, but it's a, it's got different aspects. Maybe it's because I think they called um landmark a kinder, gentler est. <laughs> because yeah. it was a, <laughs> it's, it's, it was a rich- uh,
0: Scientology light. Yeah,
1: there you go. <laughs> right. So, but it still has those similar aspects. Yeah. And so that was, um, I found that to be really key um, to our program in, at Salford. Um, mm-hmm. That I feel like it gave us a very well-rounded picture of what coercive control looks like in many different places. So that if someone hears my model, hopefully, whether they're in a high control group or a high control relationship or or they've been trafficked and they don't even realize Um, or they're in a gang, or they're in some sort of a sports organization that has become incredibly abusive to them, but they've been so indoctrinated into the process and the win-win-win that they don't, they're blind to it. It's invisible in plain sight. And so my hope is to make my model broad enough So that regardless of which situation you may find yourself in, if you are in any kind of a coercively controlling environment, hopefully you will see it. Whether I'm giving you an example of domestic abuse or an example of coercive control in the courts, um, that you will be able to go and apply that to whatever situation you might be in. and, And hopefully it raises awareness that way
0: exactly I perfect um, I you know I was first introduced to the idea of of domestic partnerships becoming you know these narcissistic abusive relationships and being described with cult dynamics as you know a one-on-one cult this is yeah, something the cult of yeah that's right this is something Rachel Bernstein a, a family cult therapist uh, introduced me to years and years ago um, way before Salford and and, I, and it made a lot of sense to me, and so I could kind of think with, oh, right, the sort of behavioral control factors are very similar or the same as how we would kind of talk about it. The, the dynamics are the same, right? What you see the cult leader do is the same thing that the narcissist or predatory relationship spouse or partner will do but on a but on a one-on-one level rather than on a one to many level. And that's kind of how I thought about it for many years. But I but I appreciate but I came to appreciate through the program that the, the nuances of difference, you know, that that it's not just exactly precisely the same. And I'm wondering out of your own experience in education now if you, you know, domestic violence and that aspect of coercive control has been something I've not yet had a lot of time or, or guests to talk about with on my channel, and, and I intend on doing a lot more with that. Would you like to speak at all on, on that aspect of, you know, or that domain, as Rod might have put it, <laughs> um, of coercive control and what sort of things people should be aware of that might not be obvious? Indications are red flags of coercive control in a relationship situation.
1: Yeah. So there are, um, there are aspects in each context that are going to be a little different. Right. Um, which is one reason why I don't use, um, I don't use behaviors like uh, hitting and, Psychological abuse and emotional abuse, I use very uh, broad terms so that somebody's not looking for that specific punch in the face, mm-hmm. right? If I start listing off things that they might do or say, and I mean, the list can go on forever and ever and ever and ever, right? right? Because a coercive controller shifts and adjusts. And so, what I think is probably the most distinct. Within a um, within a, we'll call it a relationship. I um, I don't see coercive control as a relationship. I see it as a uh, a predatory situation that mm-hmm. a one person targets another in order in order to intentionally exploit and dominate that person to get from them whatever it is that they want from them. Um, but inside of that context. Um, i think that the the biggest distinction is that when you're dealing with a coercive controller in that environment is the level of intimacy mm. and i don't mean like sexual intimacy mm-hmm. what i'm referring to is that in a in a relationship type environment because even if i if i'm the target i don't know i'm not in a relationship okay mm. so for for one person it it is a relationship for the other one it's you know, it's an attack,
2: right? Right. <laughs> but
1: for the person who's who who believes that they're in a relationship, they are doing things, and and they are intentionally trying to grow intimacy. They're trying to get as close to that person, learn about them, have that person learn about them, and the details and the information that a coercive controller inside of a one-on-one cult can obtain is typically more than what they could obtain inside of another environment. Now, that may be different in like for, for instance in Scientology I know they do the um what are those called? Oh,
0: they they're auditing.
1: Yes. And so in an auditing environment, yeah. you're you're literally doing that same it's like the the confession. kind of thing right and so they're gathering information through that auditing um so it works that way in scientology in that aspect but when you consider that if you're in a intimate relationship you're with that person so much more time you're you're living probably in the same home you might be in the same bed every night um And the degree of information that can be shared gives that coercive controller an amount of uh, an ability to exploit things in a way that is really terrorizing.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's,
1: it's individually terrorizing. Like, So if somebody leaves Scientology and then Scientology starts stalking them. Right. Cause, cause they'll do that. Right. Don't they send people out to go? So, so somebody from Scientology starts stalking this person who's left. Now that's very, that's very fear inducing. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's, it's a different kind of terror than when, um, for instance, my ex partner knew that I'd been kidnapped as a child. Mm. And so imagine when he filed to take custody of my son the level of terror that that caused for me right above and beyond what would be possible in in another type of context yeah so that's probably the biggest distinction that i see um there's also the fact that there's when you're when there's a um an intimate relationship kind of environment then there's likely children involved and when there are children involved the coercive controller has they have a tool that they can weaponize that is just it cuts to the heart and soul of a parent to have their child um turned against them with lies
0: right exactly
1: so and I don't mean to undermine anything that occurs inside of other contexts because other contexts have their own things that are kind of like that but that's that's the one that I see as being very um, distinct within a an intimate partner type relationship. No
0: coworkers. that was a that's a great answer. I love that answer because it really does get right to the point of it with the with the emotional foundation of it uh, the fact that you because you're sharing, Every moment, because every intimacy, because every part of your life is shared with this other person as a spouse or as a partner. Um, the, the level of control, I mean, there it's, you know, because of that information sharing and because of that vulnerability. And like you said, when you bring kids into the mix, oh, vulnerable doesn't even begin to describe, you know, where you're at emotionally for this other little, this little being you've created and the and the and the, the 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 way that can be weaponized against you, are the the you know the the uh, the variations are endless.
1: Yeah, they are.
0: Yeah, they really, <laughs> really are. But that but that level of of intimacy, I think that's a really great way of putting it. Because I think there's an idea out there, and you tell me if you agree with me on this or not. But I think there's an idea out there that that domestic partnerships that 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 are coercive or coercive relationships are often thought of as, well, there's physical abuse and bop, 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 bop. But the fact of the matter is, you don't have to have physical abuse in order for it to become a a deeply coercive and, and, and manipulative situation where you can't leave the house. You don't have your own money. You don't have access to the kids. You can't have a job. You you know, like, I'm going to control all your relationships outside of this relationship. All of that has nothing to do with beating on a person. And yet, you can own that person's entire life. And that's coercive control. And, you know, especially when it's, you know, (laughs) to the detriment of the person involved. I mean, none of these things are good things to be doing to somebody else and taking away their, basically, their human rights. Would, Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
1: okay. Absolutely. And yeah. and when it comes to um domestic abuse, um physical violence it, 30, 40, 50 years ago, physical violence was maybe the way that a lot of the control happened. Mm. Physical and sexual violence. Right. were, um but the the more um more rights that women gain and the more we have been taught as females to, um, to be more assertive and to get jobs and, and, and to be more independent, um, the physical violence part has become less critical. Um, and has been, and what has happened is that the coercive controllers have stopped using what is obvious in a relationship as, Obviously, domestic violence. If he punches me in the face, obviously, I'm a victim of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. Um, However, that is not necessary when you have access to such intimate knowledge of a person. Um, You can torture someone without any physical violence if you have access to that information. And, And even if you don't, like, okay, so... You just picture a a torture environment where you've uh, where a kidnapper grabs a parent, um, and and they're torturing the parent and they want information out of this person. And then that person knows the coercive controller in that situation will know that they could get to this person and get information out of them by threatening to hurt their child. Right. Right. So that's pretty that's a pretty standard movie (laughs) kind of scenario. Right. Mm -hmm. Is that we're either going to cut off a finger (laughs) or we're going to threaten to kill someone in your family. Right. So those work, um, but they're not covert. They're incredibly obvious threats. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't be that obvious when you're also trying to keep the person in the relationship with you. Mm -hmm. Right. So they have to come up with much more subtle means of dominating and controlling. And and that's why they gather all this intimate information so that they can then use it to target your most, most vulnerable places um, and to be able to get what they want from you.
0: Right. Exactly. It's all about leverage. Yes, and uh, and children and uh, and your knowledge, your information are leverage points. They're pressure points for you. I think also another factor here that's important to maybe comment on quickly, and then I want to get right into your model specifically with this, is um, is the trauma bonding aspect of this, where you will have uh, the partner reward or give good times too not just all bad times because when it's all bad it's a lot easier to break away or mentally disconnect and go wait a second i'm just being tortured 24 7 here there's nothing really keeping me here but when there are these moments and i believe and and you can maybe speak from your experience on this i believe they tend to start more and then as the relationship goes on there are fewer and fewer of these (laughs) But oh, these, yeah. <laughs> you know these moments where there's a reward of some kind, or a, let's have a good time, or a night out, or a this or that, which makes it, which which puts which puts the victim in a real you know kind of mind fuck a little bit because it's like well shit you know this person is torturing me or abusing me, but then they then they treat me well, they give me these things or I get nice stuff or or whatever happens that suddenly throws doubt on the fire and and keeps it kind of persisting. Does that? Does that fit with your experience?
1: Oh absolutely. And so that's the intermittent reinforcement mm-hmm. um, they even I believe it was in Biderman's research that uh, that he found that intermittent reinforcement even worked with prisoners of war. And so mm-hmm. um, that is it's kind of the formula in a relationship is to have that intermittent reinforcement. Um, Because if you don't have the positive aspects, you're right. The person will um, kind of wake up earlier and sooner. Um, The way that they do this is in the very beginning, there's a lot of um, love bombing, which I prefer the term manipulative kindness because it has nothing to do with love.
0: Oh, I love that term. Oh,
1: I didn't make it up. No, I I like like it though.
0: I've not heard that. It
1: came from (laughs) from Julie Owen. Ah, Um, He's a domestic uh, violence um, expert, and um, and yeah, I like I love that term too. So Man. in the beginning, there's a lot of manipulation to make the person um, feel loved, and to make the targeted person believe that the coercive controller is the perfect person for them. Mm-hmm. So they do a lot of mirroring. And they do a lot of um, love bombing or manipulative kindness. And then they do this other thing, which is, which was what my experience um, included. And which was the thing that, that had the most impact on me, which was future faking. Are you familiar with the term future faking?
0: Well, I am. I've heard it before, but go ahead and define it for the audience.
1: Sure. So it's essentially, it's where. They de- where the coercive controller deceives the target into believing that they are going to work together towards this beautiful future. Right. And what right. the target doesn't know is that the coercive controller has absolutely no intention of fulfilling on any of the promises that they're making. They're what they're doing is they're, and this kind of goes into my model a little bit, they are creating a mirage. And what the target doesn't know is that behind this beautiful mirage of the perfect family, and we're going to do a business together, and we're going to flip houses together, we're going to do all these great things, and it's going to be wonderful, we're going to raise a fabulous family. What they don't know is behind that mirage of the future fake is the quicksand of the coercive control. Right. And. But because they are so entranced by the mirage in the beginning, they have confirmation bias for a long time. That's right. And so, so if the if the bad things start off really small, they make excuses for the person, right? They they give them the benefit of the doubt because. When you're in a relationship, not everything's going to be perfect, right? That's right. And so, so that intermittent um manipulative kindness continues to keep the confirmation bias in place for a long time until it doesn't.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Until there's enough of... what I, The way I've sort of talked about it or thought about it is until there is a moral transgression of such irrefutable, undeniable proportions that the person... You know, has a sort of moral dilemma and, and wake up call. Oh my God, you know. But it has to, but it has to be irrefutable and undeniable in order for the person to actually fully wake up from the thing. Um, well, let's go ahead and get into your model then. Now, let me let me just say for everybody, um, you know, models are awesome. They are a way of framing behavior or looking at a context of something or putting things into a particular context so that you can understand them better. They are not the thing itself, right? The behavior is the behavior, and there's different ways we can break it down and look at it. And, but models are very, very helpful for this. And we're all familiar, of course, with um, Lifton's model of thought reform with the eight points of milieu control and uh, confession culture and all that kind of thing. Another model is Steve Hassan's bite model. Everybody's super familiar with that in the cult world. It's a model. It's just a, a way of explaining here's what people do, let's break it down into maybe some categories or some levels or some, you know, a a sort of graphical representation of what are we looking at so that we can plug other instances into that and compare and contrast what are we looking at, right? That's kind of my, you know, 50 foot high view of what's a model. What what would you, what do you think?
1: Oh, that's great. That's perfect.
0: Great. Okay. So that being said, you, as part of your research, came up with one. What, what, what is this about?
1: Yeah, so I, um, I was in the process of getting ready to speak at a couple of conferences, and I was looking for a way to um, present the information on coercive control uh, in, a, in a digestible amount of time. So I had, I was going to be speaking for the international course of control conference for that conference. I only had between 20 and 30 minutes and I was going to be, uh, keynoting for the domestic violence symposium in Washington state. And this was in the fall of 2021. And for both of those, I I didn't have much time. I had 30 minutes on one and and 60 on the other. And as you know, course of control is complicated. It's complex. (laughs) Yeah. And it's nuanced, and it's very challenging to get the nuance across quickly, right? Um, so I um, I actually was also at the same time I had found out from the county attorney's office that the protective order violation that my ex had committed, and which had been um, the jury trial had waited for three years um, because of COVID, Right, oh, so we had sure. so be- because of COVID, all the courts shut down, and right. so we've been waiting three years. The county attorney's office informed me they were going to be dismissing that case. Oh, and and I had these two speaking engagements coming up at the next month, and I and I was frantic to try to figure out how to respond and what to do, and my symptoms of PTSD got severely triggered. And one night, I woke up two or three o'clock in the morning. I was up for at least an hour with my heart pounding out of my chest and I couldn't breathe. I felt like I was being crushed to death. Um, and I was terrified and I couldn't make it stop. There was nothing I could do to make it stop. And it was in that moment that I thought this must be what it's like to die in quicksand. Mm. And I thought, I got up the next morning and I thought, oh my God, that was the most horrible night. And then I thought, well, but I didn't have this idea about quicksand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, so I quickly just started um, applying it and figuring out how I could make the quicksand thing match. Because what, so what my model is a little different. Most of the models um, that I've studied that you've studied Um, are essentially research models, theory models, um, and kind of awareness raising models. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: My model, I specifically created it to train professionals quickly. Ah. I wanted it to be simple. I wanted it based on um, imagery that would, because, you know, a picture says a thousand words, right? And so I wanted it to be visual because I knew that that would be faster than reading, you know, a big, thick book. We read lots of big, thick books when we were
0: Yes, read. we did. <laughs> With lots, lots and of, lots of words in them.
1: <laughs> yes. lots, lots of books <laughs> and lots of papers. And I wanted it to be easy mm. and quick And so I specifically designed it with the the metaphor of quicksand in mind and the imagery of quicksand so that someone could get the sense of what it's like when you're trapped in coercive control and you can't get out. And the fact that quicksand, the more you fight it, the deeper you sink and the faster you sink and that was um i found to be very applicable um in these environments right mm-hmm. if you stand up for yourself in a in a relationship with a coercive controller they're likely to escalate you're likely to get punished mm-hmm. so any kind of attempt to get out of the quicksand forces you deeper mm-hmm. um quicksand is also invisible in plain sight right you you can walk right up to it and not, and not see it, and you can walk right in, and it takes a second, and all of a sudden, you're like, oh, I can't, I'm trapped, and you can't get out of quicksand on your own. Now, you can survive quicksand on your own, and my model is really based more on the idea of quicksand, because quicksand in reality, right, right, right. there are all ways to get out of quicksand in reality. Right. But this is like the movie version of quicksand right. where you step in and you're sinking and you're gonna die, right? Right. Um, but then there's other things about actual quicksand that um that match the metaphor uh for coercive control. Um for instance, if you're you can be trapped in quicksand and even if you're not gonna die from it. If you can't get out, you can't get to water, you can't get to food, and the animals could get you. Mm. So you are vulnerable while you're trapped in psychosocial quicksand, you are vulnerable in a way that you're not normally vulnerable.
0: Oh, that's a great point. That's a really nuanced and really good point to make about this. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's true. As I, I just realized, that's something I've never really commented on, but it's I, I can agree with it immediately, because yeah. you are you it, it it exposes you or opens you up to other things. I mean, just as an analogy, just to just to build on that real fast, you would be amazed how many people get involved in Scientology and then become vulnerable to MLM schemes or other get rich quick schemes that they would not have been vulnerable to prior to getting involved in Scientology I saw it over the decades of including my own family uh yeah. in that so just as a just as a, a proof of that so please carry on
1: oh absolutely so and and the like we had talked about before the same with if you do a lot of studying in personal development you get like this the the loaded language like there's loaded language mm. in personal development right all this language of empowerment and um being the your own uh, uh, attracting abundance oh yeah creating your own reality and all this stuff all of those things um provide a, a doorway for predators um and so if you don't if you don't know that. Um, then you can very easily be taken advantage of in that way. Yeah. So um, the other thing that my model has is um, is alliter- alliteration. So I have the I have the the doubles and Darvo. I have five doubles and Darvo. So there's double standards, double binds, double speak, double think, double vision, and Darvo. Mm. And so again, I created that so that it would be easy to learn and easy to remember and a quick reference for any situation, right? You don't necessarily, you could, you could be in a situation. It can can give you a reference point for sort of like, I call them signs because in my model, they're literal signs along the edge of the quicksand, right? To keep you from stepping in. Um, But like people call them red flags. So If you understand what a double standard is, and then someone uses a double standard on you, you can think, oh, okay, that's a double standard. And that's a great way to start looking around and seeing if any of the other doubles are present. There you go. Is there, have I been placed in a double bind in any way? Mm -hmm. Am I all of a sudden having a very difficult time making decisions because it seems like no matter what decision I make, I always get screwed. That's right. right?
0: <laughs> that's so, right. No matter what I do, I'm wrong.
1: That's right. Exactly. Yeah. You're wrong. That's right. <laughs> so, 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 that's right. So, so you start looking for these um, these different doubles that show up. Double speak is essentially the way that coercive controllers um contradict themselves they may tell you in one moment how much they love you right with the manipulative kindness you get this love bombing stuff and in the next moment the second you do something that displeases them all of a sudden you disgust me now for a person to go from i love you with all my heart to you disgust me that is so that's a definite that's one of the examples of double speak Um, there's also double speak also refers to, um, like word salad where the person can go on for hours and never say a damn thing, right? Like, and, and circular arguments, people who are coercively controlling, you think that you're going to be able to nail them down, right? Like you ask them a yes, no question. It's, there's no other answer but yes or no, and they can go on for an hour and never give you a yes yeah. or a no. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, let's see, double think is essentially what's happening in the mind of the coercive controller that allows them to use double speak. They have actually deceived themselves into believing that they're a good guy, even though they do these other things. Of course. And so there's this double think that then comes out their mouth and you hear it or or it's a double speak in their words and their actions, right? So they say one thing, but they do another. So if there's Mm -hmm. contradiction in either their words or their actions, I call that double speak. And then for the fifth uh, double is double vision. And that is the sort of the catch-all I use for what the survivor or the victim experiences. So the person who's targeted by the coercive controller experiences this double vision because they're dealing with this person who's got all these other doubles, right? They're, they're kind of a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. And so it creates this double vision for the survivor. And so any of the symptoms of trauma would be what I consider double vision. And so if, if the survivor is, um, has a substance use issue, if they are experiencing PTSD or complex PTSD, if they are hypervigilant, if they, um, have difficulty concentrating flashbacks, nightmares, all these different things, I would put all of those into the double of double vision. And then Darvo, I don't know if are you familiar with Darvo? The I am,
0: but again, yes, yeah, yeah. go ahead and tell my audience because this is a thing.
1: Yeah, so Jennifer Fraid's research, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her last name, right? So I apologize if it's not correct, but her research um, on Darvo found that there's this uh, strategy that especially coercive controllers who are sexual predators will use to avoid accountability. And it's an acronym. It stands for deny. I didn't. I don't know that woman. I'm not a. I. She's not my type.
0: Oh my god! Yeah, I've never heard that before.
1: Attack. Mm -hmm. She's just a slut. She's trying to. She's attention seeking. She's crazy. Whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, crazy abusing substances. Are the are the two biggies that come with the attack, yeah. and then we reverse the victim and offender.
2: Right.
1: How could you ever think that I would have assaulted her? How could you think that of me? That reverses mm-hmm. the victim and offender, and so Darvo is incredibly common in all of the contexts of course of control, yep. and um, and once you know what it is and you you you'll see it and you'll see it everywhere
0: <laughs> it's a, and it's exactly it really is cuz it's because it really is that role reversal of i'm the victim here you know the manipulator or the predator turns themselves into the victim because victims get sympathy right victims get support and that's right. what they're seeking that's what they're trying to cast themselves in the role of and and it's um it's one of those things that i uh, I mean we're sitting here talking about and breaking down these characteristics and this is where and, and I'm and I'm gonna ask you the same thing about your model as well, but I wanted to kind of put out there that these these terms can also be overused, kind of like narcissism has been. And we need to be careful when we talk about these things that we are talking about behavior that you can break down and clinically examine and really look at and see. Predators do this. This Darvo thing is no joke. It's amazing to watch. It's almost predictable. It's like so bop oh, yeah. bop bop. They're just hitting all the beats. That's this right. Is, you know, and we see this in PR. We see this with predators. You quoted uh, one uh, directly on this, right? And it's so it's out there. It's a real thing. But I just want to caution people when they learn about this that sometimes we can overapply this a little bit. And target people who are not really predatory but are really in a tough situation and it's a little hard to tell what's right and wrong. And I, and I don't say any of right. that to rationalize or justify away any predatory behavior just like I would not rationalize away the definition of narcissistic personality disorder. It's a thing. And there are right. people out there. But we also see these things get a little watered down through overuse. So I want to be... You know, I just want to throw that out there to the audience because oh, it drives that, me crazy.
1: <laughs> that is such such an excellent point because I, I don't. You may have noticed this, um, but in the in the herd depth trial,
2: yeah,
1: um, there was there were claims being made by both sides mm. of Darvo, right? And so, what you ha- have to be able to do is you have to be able to look at the whole picture. Um, just like when, um, are you familiar with, with the Gabby Petito case, the young woman who was killed by her boyfriend? She was, she did the van life thing. She was on Instagram a time. Yes. Yeah. They I remember that
0: last, him. yeah. Yeah. Was that last year? That or was that been, earlier this year. fall
1: of 2021, maybe September-ish of 2021. Okay. It was right, it was right before I went, um, on to speak. Mm. Um, which would have been in October of 2021. So, so in that, um, in that case, what happened was that the police became convinced that Gabby was the primary aggressor. Mm. Now there are many reasons why they became convinced of that. Um, And, but what, what can happen is that in situations where it's, where it looks like a he said, she said,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you really have to get more information. That's right. And the way to do that is to, so f- for instance, in that situation with, with Gabby and Brian, what would have been useful would have been if the officers had asked what had happened before any physical contact. Right. Right. Um, because what what coercive controllers are great at is being all friendly and buddy buddy with the police and convincing the police I I didn't do anything and the person who has been um, harmed is much more likely to be angry and. Uh, hysterical,
0: emotional, exactly. Like,
1: overly emotional, exactly. That's right. And so, yeah, it's very critical that we get more information.
0: Big time. Um, uh.
1: You can't just pull. You can't just pull an assault. That's what's wrong with our single incident model. Right. Right now is because right. any physical assault is considered family violence. But what if she assaulted him because he was strangling her, right? If we miss the strangling because there were no marks and we arrest the victim because she scratched him to get him off of her, we're, we're getting it backwards. We're getting it wrong. And so thank you for pointing that out because that is absolutely critical that we look in more detail and we look at the entire context. We cannot decontextualize any of these things.
0: That's right. That's right, and and it, exactly right. Taken in isolation, anybody can be framed to be a monster because we all engage in crazy ass behavior from time to time. And I'm not talking about beating up on each other. I'm not, I'm not talking about that level <laughs> of crazy, but you, know, right. you, you can reframe anybody to look like a narcissist you know Absolutely. who might have an ego problem you know this kind of thing so again exactly i think that's exactly the right advice look at the whole picture look at the history look at the patterns look at the relationship history i'll tell i mean i'll clue you in on one thing narcissists don't have friends for a really long period of time <laughs> you know they just they just run through relationships and uh they don't have friends from 20 30 years ago but for the most part I, I always exceptions but you know this kind of thing so just, just stuff to look for. All right. Well, so let me ask you then. So in looking at this model, and I love what, how you've described this—the doubles and the Darvo. Wow, this is this is really cool. It, it really is. It's very simple. It's easy to understand. How would you, um, w- other than what you just said, maybe maybe you just answered this for me? But how would you apply this in such a way that you can target or label or identify, you know, the source of the coercive control without? you know, with while still doing your due diligence or still making sure that you're not mislabeling um, either a victim or an innocent, you know, bystander or whatever?
1: Sure. So it's, so I don't like the term corroborating evidence, but it's the first thing that came to me when you said that. (laughs) There's, you want to look at the entire picture of each person too, right? right? So if if you're looking at what looks like a, a he said, she said, well, what's the character of, Of this person in other contexts, right? Um, and 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 victims are often convinced by their coercive controller that they're the abusive one, because they may have, like, like you said, lost it at some point after being tortured all day long. They might just smack them in the face. That's right. (laughs) Right. Well, that's family violence assault. That's a crime. But if she was acting in self-defense, there's a lot more nuance to that. Exactly. And our whole justice system needs to get better at contextualizing these things because there is an awful lot of um, survivors sitting in jail for either assaulting or killing their abusers. I mean, there's a huge, per- a huge percentage of of women that are in prison are there from domestic violence because they mm-hmm. fought back. Right. Um and that was not the question you asked me.
0: No, no, but, it, but you answered it, actually. And that, I mean, because you exactly said, right, you have to look at the whole character and you have to look at the whole history. And that's, that is really the answer. Um, you know, that's how I resolved for myself, not to get, you know, too much into controversial territory here, but that's how I resolved for myself the Amber Johnny problem um is i looked at the bigger picture i looked at the history over long term of both of those individuals and that answered it for me and i don't have to get into what my answers are right now i'm just saying that's how i resolve that issue for myself and i resolved it in such a way that i have no question about it you know so right uh and that's how you would get that's that's a good way of doing that because it takes it out of the well i believe this statement but not this one and this but not the you know and it's like let's 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 give these people a break and look a little bit larger here
1: well it's just too easy it's too easy to find the victim guilty yeah because of the double vision that they're going to present with they're oh. going to look hypervigilant and um confused and scared and angry and so it's just it's too easy to pin it on them so you've got to look deeper Um, you've got to look deeper when I do, I do, um, I support survivors who are going through family court cases and I do assessments of their cases for coercive control. And then I write reports that can be, um, submitted to the court Mm -hmm. as evidence. Um, and then I testify as an expert witness, uh, on occasion in these cases. Um, and when I'm doing an assessment, it, it, I do my full psychosocial quicksand model assessment. I do other evidence based assessments that are known to show um, uh, risk uh, and fatality um, markers. And I do those and then I do mine and I get a very full picture. I talk to the person, I talk to other people that they know, other people who have witnessed things and then i review documents and so that's how i make sure that i'm um, that i have appropriately analyzed the case and that any uh, any conclusions i've come to any recommendations i may make are based on evidence and a full context of the situation right
0: that's, uh, and I think when, when, especially when we're dealing with things clinically uh, or legally uh, in those contexts, that's, th- there's just no substitute for that. Um, it, it, having had that experience, I, I have a couple of questions as well because I was just thinking to myself while you were presenting here that what a great model for perhaps educating law enforcement. Uh, because I think we have a problem with law enforcement of course, we have many problems with law enforcement, but, you know, but this this particular thing is something that, you know, if we're going to talk about things that law enforcement officers need to know about, mental health, coercive control, things that they are going to literally run into every single day. Uh, there's just no way around it. You get onto a domestic violence call, odds are you're looking at a longer-term situation there, and it shouldn't just be an approach of here's an act now I'm going to you know throw on the cuffs i it would be nice if there was more, and I yeah. think if they were educated, there could be more there could be hope for more what what's your take on that and 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 you, how does your work fit into that?
1: yeah, so that's my hope is that my model can and i'm working on a i'm working on a book that'll be part of a training program um but the my hope is that uh law enforcement uh courts anybody with any kind of professional within the court system, judges, attorneys, guardian ad litems, um, and then therapists that all of the, all of the different pieces of that system that touch a, a situation where a, um, where there might be a domestic violence issue that they could be educated quickly. And that's why I tried to make it as simple and as visual and as easy to remember as possible um, so that it, it wouldn't take long.
0: Because, no, I mean I, I could right. see this being taught in a day seminar with with he- heavy emphasis on practical exercises and and, um, and 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 maybe written work from them on examples of all of this because the model is so quick that it's mostly on them to figure. Oh, okay, yeah, I've seen this. I've seen this. I've seen this and relate it back to their real world experience so it becomes a lot more usable and it's not just some seminar I went to and you know, kind of thing. I think that would be important in this.
1: Well, and I have done, um, I've done uh, a couple of uh, one day trainings mm. on the model for multidisciplinary teams. Great. Um, they, they included law enforcement and uh, therapists and uh, parole folks and attorneys and district attorneys. And so the, the, um, feedback that I got from the, from those training days was, uh, very positive as well as the, when I did my research, the, my, the scores for, um, motivation, education, Did it validate the survivors? Did it empower the survivors? Did they feel inspired to do something with the model? And then did professionals um, feel that they learned something that they could use in their work? The scores were so high that it messed up my mean.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Excellent.
1: I was like, well, that's okay because I got really good scores and so, the model was very well accepted by both the survivors that were domestic abuse survivors, the survivors that were cult survivors. I don't know if anybody's ever done a course control research on, on domestic abuse and cult together, but that's mm-hmm. what I did. So um, I found that that, and it was fascinating that the folks who, ha- who scored at the highest were the ones who had more experience of it. So um, people who were both survivors and professionals scored it higher than if they were just a survivor or just a professional. People who had uh, experience as domestic abuse and cult scored higher than one or the other alone. Um, And and the people that scored at the highest had the most amount of experience. So IPV, cult, survivor, and professional in the field. And so that tells me that the information inside the model um, is valid for the co- for the for coercive control and the way that it the w- the d- way the dynamics show up and the way that the f- the pattern functions.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I I got nothing but two thumbs up for you on this thing. This sounds awesome. And, and you're already getting to work with boots on the ground, putting this thing into practice, which is of course the most important part of this because it's nice to have it, but if nobody's looking at it or using it, then who cares, right? So getting it out there is, is what matters. And, the, and it's these kinds of things that are really going to, it's from these you know, little snowballs, right? That we get the big effects or, or that's, how that's how it's gonna start because we need this. We have a legal system, at least here in the United States. You know, we have coercive control on the books in the UK for domestic violence. We don't have it there for cults yet. It's not really been extended in that direction. It needs to be, but at least it's there for that. And that repeating pattern, I keep stressing this in my shows because it's so vital to understand it's not a one-off. Anybody can lose their shit once. That doesn't make them a predatory abuser. It's, is it a repeating pattern of coercion and control? And then you can see the premeditation. Then you can see the design that is actually being laid out by the predator. And that's it. That's what we're talking about. We're not talking about random abusive behavior, people getting into fights. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about this, this repeating pattern of coercion. So... That all being said, um, Kate, thank you very much for presenting all of this. Are there any other aspects of this um, that we should talk about before we wrap up here today?
1: Well, I I just, while you you were speaking, the thing that really struck me um, as critical in what you just said is that the main thing that is missing and is invisible still, is that coercive control is strategic, intentional. It is a setup from day one.
2: That's right.
1: When, when that coercive controller either goes after someone to prey on as a partner, or if they're going after them to prey on them, to bring them into their high control group, or their MLM, or their gang, or they're trying to recruit them into human trafficking, when they do that, they know exactly what they are doing, right. and that piece is important to understand because until we understand that piece, we're we're, we're not putting the right pieces in place to address it,
0: you uh, know? Beautiful. That's exactly right. That's so right. It really does. It does bear repeating. Um, you don't slip and fall into a course of control situation. You don't accidentally coerce somebody. It doesn't work that way. It is always by design. And that's one of the hardest things to get people's wits wrapped around too, especially empathic people, because they tend to project themselves onto other people. And the fact of the matter is that, yeah, there are a lot of empathic people out there, but you know what? There's the reverse side of that coin, and it's awful hard to see or spot, you know, especially from empaths, I think, <laughs> because of that projection problem. You know, oh, they what? People think like that? People do that? What are you talking about? No way. That's crazy. No, they do. They do. And they're out yeah. there. And they are. and And we are their prey. That's right. That's, they are the
1: wolf in sheep's clothing.
0: That's right. And they're out there. So, um, so this is something to know about uh, for for protection of self, for protection of your of those you love, and for you know, of course, the world at large. Uh, so again, Kate, thank you very much for taking the time and and coming on here and and, and let me know about this because you reached out to me and I was like, oh, this looks kind of interesting, and so here we are. And I and and honestly, I I the way you presented it here, it just clicked immediately. So, oh, awesome! Yeah, so I love it. Uh, so I, I, yeah, definitely. So, how do people reach you if they have more questions or they want to know more about this?
1: Sure. So um, I have a website. Um, it's End Coercive Control USA. Uh, you can also go to psychosocialquicksand.com.
0: Cool. Um, but there are so, links, in- links in the description below to both of those folks.
1: Awesome. And, um, there's, I have a resource page with tons of resources for anyone who's a survivor and needs quick assistance, or there's a a research page that talks about a lot of the research on coercive control. And there are links for both survivors and professionals to, um, contact me for free consultation. So if you need training for your a police department if you need training for your therapist group i did a training for a human trafficking organization um a few weeks ago so if you need training you go to the professionals link and if you are a survivor who is desperately fighting in family court to protect your children you can go to the survivor page and i'm happy to help you with a free consultation there
0: awesome awesome thank you kate very much uh, appreciate you you being here
1: It was great to see you again. (laughs) Yeah,
0: you too. This was fun. Um, Okay, folks. So I hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. (laughs) And I hope that uh, you will find this uh, podcast informative, educational, and entertaining, as always. And, of course, I hope you will consider supporting the channel and, of course, subscribing uh, if you have not already. Uh, So without all that being said, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.